All right, well, as I said in my introduction, I'm excited for today's message because we're starting a, a new series called Who Am I? And I'll tell you uh, how I got inspired by this message. Some of you are going to think I'm kind of on a tape recorder the last three weeks with the introduction of my message because I'm going to tell you I was recently on a men's weekend retreat and I became inspired by something and therefore now I have a message from that retreat. And you're probably going to think are all my messages inspired by Dayclorus weekend and it's probably they are because I've been on a lot of them lately. But... They're good. So I'm, I'm moving beyond the plastic cup that said love all and serve all. And I have a new topic for today. I was actually on the weekend and Susie had given her dad this print that said on there a scripture from 2 Samuel verse 7 that says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And I looked at that verse and I'm like, yeah. Something sized me like I, I need to know a little bit more about that verse. And probably by the next day, I probably would have forgot that until Lynn Snyder played a song by his grandson, Chris Renzema, in which it has this verse right in the song. It's a beautiful song. And I don't know when the album's coming out, but you have to buy it just for that song because it is an amazing song. Actually, if Chris was here, I'd just say play that song three times and it'd be better than my message because in that little song packs so much of what this message is about and what the whole chapter of 2 Samuel 7 is all about. It's just a beautiful chapter of restoration and wholeness and of what God wants to do in your life. So we'll keep you informed when that song comes out because it's, it's, a, it's a doozy. It's a good one. So that's kind of the inspiration that I had, just kind of seeing that, that verse and then hearing the verse. And I think sometimes we wonder, how does God speak to us? And sometimes it's when you see a verse and you're like, yeah, i got to really figure that verse out a little bit more and just kind of prompts you to kind of jump in the Word a little bit more and kind of figure out what is going on behind that verse and kind of what's the backstory. So I want to talk the next few weeks about the series of Who Am I? Kind of just a response to David's question of Who Am I, God? And, and basically, God, why are you so good to me? Why have you been so kind to me? Why have you shown so much restoration to me and my family? And that's, that's kind of David's answer, kind of basically saying to God, why are you so kind to me? And I think every single one of us does ask that question at some point in our life of who am I? We want to know who I am I, and then because if we understand who I am, it helps us understand a little bit more what is my purpose in life. Who I am and the purpose in our life kind of go together. So it's really important that we understand who we are because it helps us to understand what we are called to do as a, as a, a, as a group of people. So now over the next few weeks, I want to look at this verse and look at the whole uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel to kind of understand a little bit more about who we are and what God has called us to do. And I think part of this uh, series is also going to help us to maybe lay aside some misunderstandings that we have of who we are. I think during the series we might understand a little some of the misconceptions that we might have about who we are. And maybe through the series we'll just kind of deconstruct a little bit about what we think our life is about. And part of this message series is to kind of take a good look at ourselves, to kind of understand a little bit more of, of who we are, but also to re replace anything in our life that's maybe error and replace it with the truth. And I think this, this chapter in Samuel is a good chapter to really 
expose some maybe wrong thinking in our life and replace it with some truth. So I'm excited for this message. So let's get started. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read part of the chapter and then I'm going to do a little commentary on it. So we're going to go back and forth. So I want to start out by reading 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 through 2. So it says, When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. So that's the introduction to 2 Samuel 7, where David is in his palace, sitting next to his good friend Nathan, and looking out at all that God had done for him. It almost starts a little bit like a fairy tale, where David could have almost started like once upon a time, there was a man who had a really challenging background, but then through the course of his life, God redeemed him, and now he's living in this beautiful palace. It starts out kind of very peaceful, kind of a serene setting that is of David sitting in this palace with his friend Nathan. And from the text, we it's inferred that David's like, look how good God is to me. God is so good to me. I am in a palace that is made out of cedar, And there's God outside in a 300-year-old tent. And David thinks, wow, maybe I'll do something really nice for the Lord and I'll build him his own temple or maybe build him a new house. And that's a very admirable thing for David to do, to consider that the Lord is in this old tent and he is going to build him something new. So this chapter starts out with this this beautiful... uh, this beautiful aspiration that David has to do something good for the Lord. And it's a beautiful story, too, because if you remember where David came from, David didn't start out a king. He didn't grow up in a, in a palace, and he started out a lowly shepherd boy. He actually started out as a shepherd boy that was kind of overlooked by his family, by his father, and he was just kind of isolated, rejected. And a lot, most people didn't think very much of this young man, and he grew to become the king of Israel. So the point of this whole verse isn't just to show us how nice that God is to David. This chapter isn't there just to show us that God was really good to David, but it's to show us that God's really good to all of us and to show us what God wants to do in each of our lives. That David's experience of restoration in his life is what God wants to do in each of our lives. But I'll tell you, I think one of the things that's hard when you look at this verse, and you see in here that it says, and David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. I think sometimes we have a hard time understanding what does the word rest mean? See, in our American culture, rest means taking a nap on Sunday afternoon. Rest means you coming home from work and maybe getting a little 15-minute nap in, or rest can often mean watching a Netflix series for a few hours, just kind of taking it easy. So what does rest mean that David would have rest from his enemies? Does that mean he's just taking a little nap? It's a hard word for us to understand, but yet rest is a repeated theme throughout Scripture. It's, you know, it's all the way in the beginning of the Bible. And rest is often described in the Hebrew language as peace or ease or refreshment. So part of rest is peace, but there's also way more to this definition of rest. So we see God, in the, in when he, after he created the heavens and the earth, he created them in six days, and on the seventh day it said he rested. And that wasn't rest because it was tired. He, God was tired because he worked really hard that week. Instead, God was establishing for us a pattern 
a rhythm that would be in our life, that you would work hard, but that you would also rest. So we see that coming in the very beginning in Genesis, but then we see when the Ten Commandments come around, it also reminds us that we need to observe the Sabbath, that we need to rest. It's God's way to remind us that we need to do something in our life that is very, very important. See, God desires for each of us to rest because it's something that naturally doesn't occur to us. We naturally don't think, well, I better rest. So the tricky thing about rest in the biblical terms is rest has more to do with trust, trusting in God, than it does just simply relaxing. To rest is to trust that God is going to take care of you, that he's going to provide for you in the midst of situations that are going on, in the midst of uncertainty. So to rest from your enemies means that you are aware of your enemies. You're aware of the challenges in your life. You're aware of the obstacles in your life. But you have confidence to know that God is going to take care of you through it all. That you don't have to work yourself up wondering, what am I going to do about those enemies? What am I going to do about those challenges? What am I going to do about my finances? What am I going to do about my kids? What am I going to do about this? It's to sit back and say, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can rest knowing that God has a better plan for my life than I have for my life. To know that God has a vested interest to get me to where I need to be. So that's the meaning of rest that opens up in this very first verse. Is that David understood that even though he had enemies that wanted to come after him, he knew he could sit in confidence knowing that God was going to take care of whatever was lurking outside of his palace. So David's there sitting next to his good friend Nathan who is his prophet. And David does come to the decision that he needs to build the Lord a new house. That it wasn't good for the Lord to be out there in a tent. So he said that and his prophet Nathan replied to him and he said, Go ahead, do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. Sounds like good advice. After all, you wanted to do something good for the Lord. It's a little bit surprising that David has this great thing that he wants to do for the Lord when you read on to the next verse starting in chapter 4. Said, but at that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? God's saying that as a question. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. First, we see that David wanted to do something very nice for the Lord, and it was a good thing. There, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that it was a manipulative move. It was David's response to say to God, you've been faithful to me, I want to, sh- I, I want to do something out of response to what you've done for me. But it's interesting because just because it's a good idea doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will for you to do that. And that's an interesting scripture that we have that David wants to do something and the Lord says, no, I don't need you to do that. It's counterintuitive for what we typically think. We think we, there's something nice we should do that we probably should go ahead and do it. But I think this verse is a good reminder to us that we need to submit and surrender everything to Jesus Christ. We just don't do it because it sounds like a good idea, but we have to surrender to make sure that God actually wants us to do it. And the second point about this verse that's beautiful is that it shows the character of God, that he always wants to be with his people. 
See, God said in here that he didn't have a home, that he would rather be with his people, so he was willing to go camping to be with his people. That he would move around in a tent to be with his people. And while the nation of Israel is wandering through a desert, God said, I want to be with them in a tent. Now, God could have said, you know, I have heaven as my home. I can go up there. I can be in a place where the streets are lined with gold, where everything is perfect. But yet, God chose to come down to earth and be with a tent and be with his people. And I think that's a beautiful attribute of God that sometimes we miss in the Old Testament, that God wants to be with his people. And he's willing to be with his people no matter the situation or the cost that the God of the universe would live in a tent. It's a beautiful attribute of God. And I think that's something that we sometimes miss, that God's incarnation to come and live on earth and to be in a tent. And chapter, verse 7 goes on, and it says, Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to the Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of, of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? See, it's another attribute of God that he never complains. That he never had to complain that he had to be with his people, that he had to live in this old tent. But yet God wanted to be with the nation of Israel through their ugliest of situations. That he didn't mind being with them in the desert. That he didn't mind being with them when they rebelled against him. I think so often in our church culture, we sometimes get the idea that God's mad at us. And I think we see in chapter 7 here that God would do anything to be with people. And that his kindness is to be with people. That attribute of I want to be with you, and I don't care what situation you're going to put me through. I want to be with you in that situation. That God was willing to give up being in heaven to be on earth so he could be near to people. In verse number 8, it continues to go on and it says, Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep. He's reminding Nathan that he took David out of shame and out of disrespect and out of isolation. That's where David started. In the pasture, and he selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they have done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. And here the Lord is re, re, re saying again that he is going to give you rest from your enemies. A unique verse where it first talks about he's destroyed your enemies, but now he's giving you rest from your enemies. I think sometimes we wonder that even in our New Testament area. Jesus destroyed our enemies, but we still have enemies. And I see we, we see the pattern even here in the Old Testament where your enemies have been defeated. But the truth is your enemies still want to get back at you. They still want access into your life. Maybe if you've conquered something, conquered something from your past, but your enemy is still there, wanting to get back in your life. And you're aware of that. I'm aware of that. And God is saying, but I'm going to give you peace. I'll give you rest. 
I'm going to give you the strategy anytime your enemies are trying to come back into your life. But what a beautiful verse that God wants to build a legacy for David. See, the verse starts out, the chapter starts out with David wanting to build God a house, and God replies, no, I'll take care of that. Instead, I want to build you a legacy. Basically, God is saying to David, it's not about you giving to me, David. It's about me giving to you. In our last series, we talked a lot about the verse from Mark 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. We see that of the God of the Old Testament, always there to serve others. That even though David said, I'll build you a temple, the Lord's response is, no, David, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to serve you. God is saying, remember, David, I'm always the giver, and you are always the receiver. Then in verse 12, it picks up, and it says, For when you die and you are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. See, now we're beginning to see in the Old Testament the whole idea of a messianic prophecy, the prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ. We're seeing it in this scripture that there's a reference to somebody is going to be born in David's line who's going to rule forever. So the prophet's telling David through that from your family, somebody is going to come that will rule the world forever. So now we get to chapter 14, and this verse can be a little confusing, so I'm going to read it and explain it in a little bit more detail. It says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from your sight. Now you look at this verse and you think, okay, wait a minute. You're talking about a messianic prophecy about Jesus coming, but at the same time you're saying if he sins. You're wondering, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't sin, so how is this a messianic prophecy? See, sometimes in the prophecies in the Old Testament, they were kind of a two-part. Two-part, what's going to happen immediately and what's going to happen in the future? So what we see in this prophecy is that God is saying to David, you're going to have a son who's going to rule like a king. And he's going to do some not very good things. He's going to be like Saul, and he's going to commit many sins. And this is referring to David's son Solomon, who actually rose up to be the next king. And Solomon did. He did some, made a lot of poor choices. Actually, his sons actually made very poor choices as well, and soon led the nation of Israel into a lot of problems. However, what this prophecy is doing, it's talking about Solomon, but it's pointing through Solomon and saying from Solomon will come Jesus. So the prophecy is a, a two-part. It's saying what's going to happen first is Solomon's going to come and he's going to build an earthly temple. And then through Solomon is going to come Jesus Christ. See, what the interesting thing about when the prophecy is coming, you think, okay, we're talking about building a temple. Somebody's going to come and build this new temple. Well, Solomon did. He built this temple. But when Jesus walks on the earth, he pointed at the temple and he said, you can destroy that temple in three days. And in three days, it's going to be rebuilt. And people are looking at Jesus like, no, there's no way. There's no way you could destroy that temple and rebuild it in three days. It's physically impossible to do. But what Jesus was doing, he was talking about himself. 
that you can destroy Jesus on the cross, but in three days he would rise again from the dead and he would be the new temple. He would be the new temple that would have the presence of God deposited in him and then by the power of the Holy Spirit he would live in all of us. So that's the beautiful prophecy that we see that through David's line will come the king who will rule forever and he will rule in people's hearts. So chapter, or verse 16 picks up and it says, Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all times, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything that the Lord had told him in this vision. So here we have what's going on. David, we begin the chapter with David saying, I'm going to do something nice for the Lord. I'm going to build him a new house. I'm going to build him a temple. And then God comes back and says, you know, David, um, I don't need that. I don't need for you to do that for me. David's going to bless God, but God says, no, David, uh, what I want to do is I'm going to bless your family line. You want to build me a temple? And God's saying, no, I'm going to build you a temple. One temple that's going to live in your hearts and your family line forever. So 2 Samuel is unique because 2 Samuel 7 begins with David sitting in his own house thinking what he can do for God. And it ends with David sitting in God's house thinking, wow, look at all that God has done for me. So we see a transition from the beginning of chapter 7 to where we are now. It's very evident that David is starting to recognize that everything that is happening in his life is simply because of the grace of God. It's simply because of God's kindness and his compassion and mercy. And you're seeing the humility to even develop more in David where he recognizes, I had nothing to do with this. This was all from God. So in chapter, or verse 18, we come to our theme where then David went in and he sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? Basically, David just sitting before the Lord, just, I think, a little bit shocked. Look at all that is happening in my life that I don't earn, I haven't deserved, I haven't worked for it. I think he's in a little bit of shock, just sitting before God. One of the commentaries I read says it this way. This is a little funny because I was in the library and I had about 10 commentaries in front of me and I found this good quote and I wrote it down. Then when I got done, I recognized I didn't know what commentary that was from and I wasn't going to spend an hour and go back through all the commentaries to find this verse. So this quote is from a commentary. <laughs> That's as far as you get to know. So I'm not plagiarizing anybody, but I have no idea which commentary it was. So anyway, it says, Becky, anyway, One of the surest signs that someone has come to perceive the sovereign majesty of God is that person will think correspondingly little of self. And we see that in David. The more he's recognizing the majesty of God, the more he's understanding God's grace in his life and God's favor in his life and the blessings of God, he's starting to think less and less of himself. And that is the trajectory that the Bible wants to take us on that the more we know about God, the less we are concerned with ourselves. And this is what I love about David. David didn't compare himself to other people and say, 
yeah, I've done pretty good for myself. Look at where I've ended up. I'm the king. I've been victorious. I have a beautiful palace. Instead, David had that humility to recognize where he was was a gift from God. That he didn't earn it and he didn't deserve it. And verse 21 goes on to say, What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, sovereign Lord. But of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. That's a beautiful line that David says, Oh God, you know what your servant is really like. See, David's saying, God, you know the junk in my life. You know the evil in my life. You know the thoughts I have. You know the desires I have. You know the temptations I have. You know all of that about me. But you still have a good plan for your life. See, it can be intimidating, the fact that God does know our thoughts. That can be a little overwhelming at times to think God knows what I'm thinking. God knows what I would really like to say in that situation. He knows what I would really like to do right now. But yet God knows that. But he still has a good plan for your life. I think that's the overwhelming kindness of God that he knows what's going on in your head. And he still puts up with it. I like how in 1 John 3, verse 20, it says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. What a beautiful promise that God is saying, I know how wicked your hearts can be, but I'm greater than that. In the New Living Translation, it says a different way. It says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. He knows everything. And what a compassionate God that he wants to take away our feelings of guilt and that he's greater than our guilt. I think sometimes we are harder on ourselves than God is, that we beat ourselves up way too much for our thoughts, for our beliefs, our actions, our attitudes, maybe what we did. And God's well aware of all that, but yet he says, I still have a plan. See, so when we understand God's love for us, it draws us out of sin. See, David understood that the elevation in his life had nothing to do with who he was. It had nothing to do with his skill and ability, and he probably had some good leadership skills, and it had nothing to do with the evil thoughts that he, inside, that he had inside of him. Here's another quote from John Calvin from a sermon from, on 2 Samuel. You can tell I was at Calvin College Library this week studying. <laughs> it says, and he remembered, talk about David remembered that he had not earned the royal dignity, but that it was a free gift from God. This teaches us to feel how deeply we are indebted and obligated to God and how great his mercy is to us. I think it's a beautiful quote, but it's also, this is not out of guilt, this indebtedness and the obligation that we have to God. It's not out of guilt, it's out of joy. It's out of gratitude. And that's the feeling that David was, was experiencing in this chapter of just this awesome gratitude to God of look what you have done for me. And out of gratitude will come that natural desire to serve the Lord, to do something for him. 
See, our relationship with God is not supposed to be just predominantly about what we can do for God, but salvation is always knowing the character of God and sitting in awe of him in his presence. That's what David did. He went and sat in God's tent and just like, wow, just a sense of overwhelmed by the goodness of God. See, salvation is realizing all that Jesus has done for you and all that he continues to do for us on a daily basis. See, part of our Christian journey is doing things for God, serving God and, and helping Cole take down equipment after church. That's part of serving God. But what you do is always a grateful response to what God has done in your life. See, I'm glad that David said, who am I to God? That he asked that question, because you know what? We all ask that question. But see, David also said, God, you know what I am like inside. You know my feelings. See, we easily get confused in our society and culture, and we think our feelings are who we are. David knew there was a distinction between who am I and how I am feeling. David presented that before God and said, I, I know what I'm like inside. You know what I'm like inside, but that doesn't determine who I am. See, David drew a distinction between feelings and who we are. It's so common to think that our feelings determine who we are, but often our feelings are nothing more than something that just needs to be submitted to Jesus on a daily basis. Or second, we'll hear a person say that they know what they've done in the past is wrong, and they wonder if Jesus can ever forgive them. And, er and erroneously, we often think our past becomes who we are. And David draws a distinction between what you have done and who you are. See, often our past is something that just needs to be redeemed by Jesus. David said, God, I know what I'm really like on the inside. And God, I know you know what I'm like on the inside, but your kindness is still valid for me. See, David's question of who I am defeats the whole idea that you are what your feelings say you are or what you di did in the past determines who you are. See, it's so easy to determine who we are by good things in our life or bad things in our life or by our careers or by our crafts or our hobbies or our desires. But who we are is never to be determined by our feelings or what we're good at or what we're bad at. Who we are can only be determined by the creator of the universe, the one who created us. And that's why David goes to God and says, who am I? The biblical authority is the only place that can determine who you are. It can never be determined by feelings or emotions or your past or even what you're doing in the future or what you've done in the past. So I'm writing this message and I'm thinking, okay, this is pretty good so far. But I'm like, there's something missing. There's something missing. It goes beyond feelings and it goes beyond our past. And so Becky called me to tell me that Sam was having another seizure. And I was like, dang, another one. You hope to get through this cycle. And I was a little frustrated there, talking to her on the phone. Usually I talk, I'm, I'm 
I was gone again while it was happening, and I talked to her on the phone, waiting. Hopefully, it's going to be over, and I would call 911. And, I, and so he responded well, and he talked to me on the phone. He kind of bounced back quickly, and that was good. But there's part of me that got done and just like, dang. Circumstances are hard. And this is tiring. Unfortunately, I remembered back to a devotional that I read on June 24 by Paul David Tripp. If you don't have his devotional, New Morning Mercies, you should read it. It's probably the best one. However, the problem is if you read it, you're going to get 95% of the content for my messages. <laughs> that doesn't mean you don't go to church anymore. I'm just saying, I get so much from his devotionals. And I remembered at that point, I'm sitting there thinking, dang, another seizure. We've been going back and forth with Sam and our older son. It's like every week, another one. And I remembered this quote. And so fortunately, I had that book with me and I read it. Your relationship with God must be your definition of the good life. And I thought, how easily we forget that. How easily we forget circumstances in our life, feelings in our life, our past in our life determines the quality of life we have. And that's all wrong. Your relationship with God determines who you are. It determines what is a good life. And that's something we all just need to rest in. Rest in the fact that God is good and God is great and our life is determined by our relationship with him. See, David knew that. David was understanding that, and David was starting to get more and more grateful. We see as we see this chapter building. David was feeling more and more humble, and you can see that by his attitude, and you see his gratitude, his gratitude rising and, and what he's saying back to the Lord. But I'll tell you what, it's easy to look at the story of David and say, well, that's nice for David. David, David... God was just a little bit nicer to David than he is to be. After all, David did get to live in a cedar palace, and David was anointed to be king as a very young boy, and God defeated uh, David's enemies, and God gave him rest, and God gave him promises. And it's easy to look at that and say, but God did that for David, but he won't do it for me. It's easy to come to that conclusion. But the truth is, every single thing that God did for David, he will do for you and I. Every single thing that God did for David, he will do through us, through Jesus Christ. Now, probably none of us will be the king of Israel. But besides that, everything God did for David, he will do for us. First of all, David lived in a cedar palace. And you might say, well, I don't live in a cedar palace. Cedar is a uh, is a hard wood in the Old Testament that was not just a tree that was known for strength and beauty and durability, but cedar trees were also known in Scripture as a place for royalty. And we know that in Scripture, followers of Jesus are part of a royal priesthood. There is a royalty that comes upon us when we are followers of Jesus Christ. But also, cedar was a symbol of having the best protection, both spiritually and physically. See, David lived in a palace that was the best protection physically and spiritually. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we still all live in that cedar palace. As followers of Jesus, we have the best protection, 
both physically and spiritually. And second, you can say, well, David was anointed as a young boy to be king, but we have all been anointed as followers of Jesus Christ to have the Holy Spirit live in us. And third, Jesus defeated all of our enemies on the cross, just like God defeated David's enemies in the Old Testament. And two, we have been promised through Scripture the promise of peace and of rest. Our setup for a successful life is the same as David's. We have everything going on that David had going on. We have the same setup. See, David's promises were all in the word of God that came to him. And I think sometimes as believers we forget that the promises that David had come from the same place, come through the word of God. And this is where we find our promises like David found his. The Bible is full of reminders and promises that God will give us rest, that he will give us forgiveness, that he will give us adoption, that he will give us eternal life, and that he will restore all that has been lost in our life. And as David grabbed hold of the promises of God for his life, it's the same thing that we need to do in our life. Next week, Next week, I want to talk more about the rest of chapter 7. Actually talk about how David responded to the promises of God and how David actually prayed those promises and their interaction between God and, and David and the promises. But I want to close this week by talking about David's prayer of praise that just shows the heart of David. It ends in verse, or we're going to end today on verse uh, 22 when David says, How great are you, O sovereign Lord, there's no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. That's how David ends, by saying, Oh, sovereign Lord, there is none like you. So who is the great one? Is David great because he offered to build a house for the Lord, because he offered to do good things for the Lord? No, we know from Scripture that God is great. And David recognized that. See, David shows us it doesn't matter what you want to do for God. It matters what God wants to do for you. I like this quote by J.D. Greer that says, The world is not supposed to look at Christians and say, Wow, what great and impressive things that they have done for God. But instead, they're going to say, Wow, what great things that God has done for them. That's how God wants to be recognized, for the great things that he has done for each of us. See, what's supposed to stand out in our lives is people are supposed to look at us and see the evidence of God's grace and the evidence of God's power in our lives. Our lives are supposed to be a display of God's greatness and his power in our life. David knew this. David lived with a lot of uncertainty. He started out as that shepherd boy that was overlooked by his family, by brothers that didn't think he would amount to anything, by brothers that didn't think he had much of a future. But yet God saw him and he draw, draw David out of the isolation that he was in. Probably most of you know the story of David and Goliath, probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible where David stood against one of his biggest enemies that could have easily killed him. And God gave David the strength and the victory to see that enemy defeated. And a lot of us know about King Saul, another man that wanted to kill David. But yet God gave David a strategy to avoid Saul. And I know some of you are probably sitting here today and say, that's great what happened in David's life, but I don't know if that would really happen for me. It's easy to look at David's story and just say, well, maybe he was, had more advantages to that I have. I think we see how David's life started out. 
He started out the same in each one of us. Maybe a little bit isolated, maybe a little rejected, maybe a little thinking I don't deserve any of this. But yet God came into David's life, defeated his enemies, created a place of safety for him to live in, and had a plan to give him restoration and wholeness. And through all of this, David understood who he really discovered how he really was on the inside. David knew his sinful nature. He knew his proclivities towards sin. David was aware of how he felt on the inside about his feelings. But God overlooked that. He said, David, I still have a good plan for your life. And that's what Jesus does in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. He says, I have a good plan for you. I always want to redeem. I always want to restore. I always want to change your life. I think part of what we see in chapter 7 of Samuel is David's perspective even continuing to change as he hears more of the goodness of God. And that's my prayer is that we go through this series, we will understand more about the love and the kindness of God, but also that our perspectives will change. And that we will find that the answer to who I am it's not found in us. It's not found in our abilities, our past, or what we have done. But we will find the answer to who I am is only found in the character and in the grace of God. So let's close in prayer. While our worship team comes up to lead us in one more song. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of love. And a God of compassion and a God of mercy. Lord, we thank you that in your kindness that you reached down to earth and you came to live in a tent. That you were willing to go camping so you could be with your people. That you were willing to go into a desert to be with people. That you're willing to be with the people that are in captivity to lead them out and to lead them into the promised land. And Lord, I thank you that you do that for each of us. That you are willing to be involved in the ugly and the sticky and the dirty situations of our life. Because you want to give us a good life that is always determined by our relationship with you. And we thank you for that. God, I pray for any person here today, Lord, that might be experiencing any discouragement or maybe any lack of hope. That you would stir in them, Lord, the confidence to know that you want to do things in their life like you did for David. Lord, I pray that we would all walk out of here today renewed, refreshed, encouraged. That, Lord, our lives would be a living example of your grace and your kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.